Welcome to Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals, hosted by certified financial planners Justin Brownlee and Jared Machen of Brownlee Wealth Management. The only podcast dedicated to those of you in the oil and gas profession to help you optimize investments, lower future taxes, and grow your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Welcome back to another episode of FPOG, Financial Planning for Oil and Gas Professionals. This week on the podcast, we have a guest, Blaine Killian. I have known Blaine for a long time, and we are going to get Blaine's thoughts on a few different parts of the financial planning world. Primarily, we're going to talk a little bit about Dave Ramsey. Most of you listening to this, whether you have a strong opinion or no opinion on Dave Ramsey, you probably know who he is. His teaching, his courses, his books are number one bestsellers, and his thoughts on personal finance have permeated just about everyone in in America. And so uh, today, we're excited to talk about a handful of Dave Ramsey's ideas and get our thoughts on what does Blaine think about those ideas? What do uh, most financial planners on Twitter think about those ideas? For some strange reason, a large amount of fee-only financial advisors uh, really take issue and, and don't agree with a handful of Dave's teachings. And so we're going to talk about those. We're going to talk about what are some of the areas where financial planners do not agree with Dave Ramsey. What does Dave Ramsey say? And then what's Blaine's opinion on that? Um, and so we're excited to dive in today. First off, Blaine, I'd love to just have you introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do and where you're coming from. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm originally from Northeast Oklahoma. And uh, as you mentioned, we, we met at the University of Arkansas. So that's where I studied economics. And who would have thought that however long it's been 10 years later that we'd be doing a podcast on FPOG talking about Dave Ramsey. So this is fun. It's fun. And thanks for having me. Um, so yeah, after the, the reason I'm connected with FPOG is essentially I work in the energy space. So after studying at the University of Arkansas, I moved to Tulsa in the great state of Oklahoma, moved back home and started with a company called Williams and did a rotational program with them. That took me from Tulsa to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, back to Tulsa, and then down to Houston, where I currently live. And I'm currently working for a company called Cosmos Energy. I've been here for four years and it's been super fun. Cosmos is a deep water ENP and I do a bunch of uh, Gulf of Mexico business development type of activities, land, midstream, marketing, M&A type things. And so it's super fun. My wife, Sammy, and I have two boys who are four and two. And so we're just on the grind in Houston, uh, trying to stay alive and get some sleep at night and really enjoying the city. And we think it's going to be home home for a while. So that's that's a little bit about me. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, before we dive into some of the topics that we're going to debate Tell us a little bit about when did you come across Dave Ramsey? Uh, what role has Dave Ramsey played in, in your financial life? And what are your general thoughts? Why are you pro Dave Ramsey? Yeah, thanks for letting me take the pro Dave stance. Uh, I don't want to be face to face with some of your peers on Twitter who are going the other the other way. So thanks for shielding me from them today. Uh, but yeah, my first, you know, my first job moving from Fayetteville to Tulsa it's probably like most everyone is just like, you know, I had a corporate gig and it was like, whoa, like I'm actually making decent money now. And of course it was not decent money. 
but it felt like it at the time relative to my friends who were still in Fayetteville finishing up uh, their fifth year. And so um, it was like, wow, what do I do with this? And I had just gone from, you know, stealing cereal from the fraternity house to make it through the weekend on food and not have to go to the grocery store to now like, hey, I need to wrap my head around this and put together a plan for these couple thousand dollars that keep showing up in my bank account every couple of weeks. And so I leaned to Dave. I didn't lean to anyone else. I leaned on Dave, literally electronically through podcasts and articles and stuff like that to seek advice on different uh, topics that popped up, like, should I do a 401k Roth or traditional IRA, you know, stuff like that. And so that was my first taste of Dave was that first year of marriage. Um, and so I've been kind of a fan, a, well, maybe a waning fan, to be fair, um, over the past few years, but um, I've been a fan since, uh, you know, maybe 2012. And my, my one quick Dave Ramsey story in regards to personal finances for me is I was investing in an employee stock purchase program early on in my career. I was living at home with my parents, very proud of that fact. Um, so the, the money that I was saving, I was investing in an employee stock purchase program, which allowed me to buy William stock at a 15% discount to what it was currently trading at. And while Dave is not an ESPP guy, um, Dave does, tells you not to participate in these types of plans. And uh, unbeknownst to me at the time, I, I did not know that, but he's essentially just like, hey, one stock is too volatile, so don't do it. 15% is not a good enough deal to offset the volatility. And so I was piling this money in 2013, 2014. Of course, the stock drops heavily. My cost base, I was underwater for like five years, literally. Like I just came back out of it. And so that's my short story. I'm in favor of him. Don't participate in ESPPs per Dave. Um, and that has been my guiding light ever since. That is awesome. Uh, I've seen some of those social media accounts where it's it's kind of comedians that will uh, be at a restaurant paying with a credit card. And then they, they, you know, they say, what happens when you're paying with a credit card at a restaurant? And Dave Ramsey's like in the corner of the restaurant, like giving them a, a sign that he's about to beat them up or something. So that's that's a good story. Let's dive in. We're going to pick a handful of topics and we're going to first start with what is Dave Ramsey's opinion? And then I am going to provide what is the financial planners on Twitter? What is their rebuttal? Why do they disagree with Dave? And then Blaine, we're just going to get your thoughts. Um, and so if that sounds good to you, let's start it. Perfect. Let's do it. All right. So first uh, topic. Dave Ramsey loves 15-year fixed mortgages. So a big pillar of Dave's teaching is avoiding debt, getting out of debt, staying out of debt, and uh, outside of a 15-year fixed mortgage on your primary residence, debt is bad. Debt should be avoided. Financial planners on Twitter would take issue with that and say a lot of debt is either justifiable or even good. And so, Blaine, what do you have to say about that? What do you think about Dave's take with debt and, and stuff like that? Yeah, I, I think that this is a great one to start off with and just out of the gate say, I think that Dave Ramsey has done a lot of good in the financial world. And uh, like we were talking about just before the show, I think the world would be in a better financial position if everyone adhered to his advice, which is just avoid debt, be safe, be cautious. And so I think the simple reason, you know, in the 15-year the mortgage example, I think the simple reason he 
prefers that over a 30 year note is just simply the, the cost of the loan, you know? And so over time, you're going to save what thousands of, you know, whether it be $70,000 or $150,000, you're going to save a lot of money by shortening up that loan um, instead of paying the bank all that money. So um, I think that that's pretty rational advice, which is, you know, don't pay the bank a lot of money if you can avoid it. So shorten up your loan and do it. So that's my, that's my pro Dave stance on uh, the 15 the year mortgage note. Um, and then on the all debt is bad. Again, I'm for it. I think safe and simple is better. Um, and then, but to an extent, I disagree. Um, again, we were talking about this before the show. I think my, my wife and I purchased a large SUV pre-COVID, you know, craziness on the used car market. And so we got lucky there. But in that scenario, we've got, you know, something like a 3% interest rate. Inflation's at 8%. Yeah, like I think CPI was 8.5% on these these last numbers. Um, so that loan, when divided by CPI, has is, is gone negative, which is obviously a win for us. And so we're not going to pay that. We're not going to pay that loan off early. So, but in fairness to Dave, we shouldn't have bought that car with a loan if we were following his rules. So maybe that's a mute point. He, it would have never happened if I were following Dave. I would not have an eight-seater um, in Houston, Texas. And so, uh, I think that Dave's base case is no debt, and that's a great modus operandi to go with. But layering in relative, uh, relatively low amounts of debt is is a safe thing and can be advantageous. I love that. And uh, I'm going to mostly be narrator, but I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, I mean, I'll dive in here a little bit too, a little bit as well. I love 15 year mortgages. I think it's really tremendous if you can do it. I also think we're talking today. Uh, what is this? We are in late August is when we're recording this of, of 2022. It's going to be light years harder for the average American family to pull off everything he's saying relative to 1998, 2004, 2012, 2016. And Dave, if he heard me say that, he might say that's an excuse and just, you know, cinch it up and make it happen. But uh, simply put, most Americans are not going to be able to pay cash for cars. Um, that's, that's an unfortunate reality. And uh, a 15-year mortgage in any of the top 10 American cities is completely out of reach for most people who are not in the top 5 or 10% of income earners. So it's kind of an interesting dynamic uh, now compared to a decade or, or even longer ago. Uh, well, let's move on to number two. So second point, Dave Ramsey would say, invest in a portfolio of good growth stock mutual funds, I think is his terminology that he loves to use. And Dave Ramsey would say that you should expect 12% annual returns in his good growth stock mutual funds. Financial planners on Twitter really hate this point. So this is one of their biggest beefs with, with Dave Ramsey. And they would say the market is very likely not going to give you 12% per year. And they would even say it's dangerous for people to have it in their head that they're, they're going to get 12% a year and that it could, it could really hurt their financial plans if they're assuming too high of a return that does not happen. Blaine, what do you say? Yeah. First off, I'd I just like a fact check. Like is, is that true? Like, what's the S&P been doing is 12% per annum over an extended time horizon? Is that, is that true? 
Great point. Great question. Uh, let's dive into that real quick. So it is interesting that, and, and Dave Ramsey's put up some really good data on this, over different 30-year windows. So I think uh, he did 1980 or 1985 to 2015. I think he did 1990 to 2020 and maybe 1980 to, uh, was it 2010, I believe. So we can link his exact article. But Blaine, to answer your question, the S&P averaged 12% in all of those different 20 or 25 year periods, whatever it was. So the S&P did hit 12%. And we'll take the fact check a little bit further. Um, S&P 500 is a concentrated index just of large US companies. If you expand out, so that's 500 companies that are in the S&P 500. There are about seven, 8,000 publicly traded companies around the world that you can buy. Or if we just look in the US, uh, small companies, small caps are not in the S&P 500. And for almost a century, uh, small caps have done nearly 12% a year. So Blaine, that's a really good question. Fact check would say it is pretty reasonable over long periods of time that you can get 12% a year. And to Dave's credit, he points out that yes, there are going to be one, five, eight year periods that are far, far worse than 12%. But yeah, over multiple decades, 12% is pretty good. But financial planners say that is bad. You should not expect that. It's going to set you up for expecting too much and you're not going to have enough money if your financial plan depends on that. Uh, so Blaine, what do you think? Yeah, I think you just answered the question better than I could with facts instead of uh, narrative. But I think that it's a sales pitch to get his audience into a particular situation, which is investing dollars in the U.S. stock market, which I think is not. You know, I think half of the United States is invested in the stock market. You know, so and his audience is not generally the top quartile, and so. You know, so he's talking to people that are saying, hey, get your money in growth stocks, particularly when their other option is sitting on the sidelines. So I think that that's a great, great opportunity for people to get off of the sidelines, listen to him and say, yes, get into the growth. Like the U.S. stock market has generally always been a winner over extended time horizons. And so go join the winning team, get off the bench and get in the game. Um, and then hopefully at that point you're in some diversified stuff that's hopefully low cost. So yeah, I'm I'm with Dave on this one. I think that if the proof is in the pudding that 12% is there, which it sounds like it is, then I think that's great. And I think that some alternatives, particularly sitting on the sidelines, is, are not good alternatives relative to what he's pushing here. I love that answer. And at the end of the day, uh, you said exactly what I was going to pipe in and say at the end of this point. As an investor, I mean, you can pretty much choose stocks, real estate, or bonds and cash. And if you simplify investing down to that point over long periods of time, it's that simple. If you invest in things that you own them, so Dave Ramsey would say, be an owner, not a lender, own companies, don't buy bonds, you're going to make a lot more money. And history has emphatically told that story. And so, you know, maybe a financial planner can get caught up in the fact that, well, if someone's expecting 12% per year, maybe they don't save enough because what if we do have a really bad decade? And yes, if, if you are giving fiduciary advice, um, you should bring that up and, and that should be a consideration. But for Dave Ramsey hosting a radio show and, and writing books, 
I agree with you. I think it is emphatically a good thing for him to get the message out that you should buy stocks instead of bonds. And it helps enforce the message that you should be a long-term investor. You should be thinking in 20, 30-year time horizons. You should never be investing in four-year time horizons. And so I love that. Any other thoughts or should we move to the next point? That's all I got. Love it. Uh, Okay, point number three. Dave Ramsey would say, pick mutual funds with a track record of beating the market. Financial planner on Twitter. Well, active mutual funds do not usually beat low-cost index funds. So what are you talking about, Dave? Why would you endorse expensive active mutual funds instead of low-cost index funds? Blaine, what do you think? Yeah, I'm with the FPs here. Uh, I'm, I'm surprised that Dave hasn't changed his stance on this one. Like, I think that maybe mutual funds made sense further in the past. Uh, but, you know, index funds track the market. They have lower fees, higher predictability, you know, particularly in terms of performance. Um, I think, again, you know, back to Dave's kind of zoom out instead of like, hey, mutual funds, he likes diversification. He likes the fact that a mutual fund is professionally managed. So that kind of takes the rank, like, you know, kind of hands the steering wheel to somebody else uh, instead of the the retail investor and stuff like that. So I think that those are good points, but I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this with Justin, just because I'm, I'm a little surprised that Dave is sticking to the mutual fund story. Yes, I'm with you. I am surprised that he hasn't changed tune a little bit on this. We certainly, I, I mean, it's kind of a nuanced answer. We do love index funds and it's not that I'm really hardcore in the camp of either index funds or active funds. My bigger issue is cost. And so if a mutual fund costs 1% per year and you're paying your advisor 1% per year, well, my goodness, if you have $3 million with them, that is $60,000 per year. And that is going to erode your future returns or your future retirement income that you can enjoy. So I'm with you, Blaine. I lean towards the financial planners on this one. And I think, I think it's okay to not be in all index funds. Uh, our clients, we, our model portfolio is not 100% index funds, but we are hawks about the expense ratio. We are very mindful to make sure every fund that our clients have exposure to has a expense ratio that is far lower than, than average. So I'm with you. Number four, let's move on to the next point. Dave Ramsey says, before you start investing, we're going to talk about the debt snowball here, the famous debt snowball. Before you start investing, pay off all of your debts, build an emergency fund. Financial planner on Twitter, well, you don't need to pay down all of your debt before you start investing. You don't need to pay down all debt before you buy your first home. If you have student loan debt or something like that, it's okay to go ahead, buy a house or invest before paying off 100% of your debt. Blaine, what's your take? Yeah, I think it's a little nuanced on this one. Um, First, I think I'm surprised it's taken this long to reference the Bible when it comes to Dave Ramsey as like just his mantra and who he is. And so, uh, you know, being a man of faith and all of that, uh, he mentions the Bible a lot, like in his podcasts and referencing throughout books and stuff like that. And so in regards to debt, there's a proverb that says, the borrower slave to the lender. I think the reality of taking out loans is that you're beholden to the bank. And not only does that add financial pressure, I think it also adds emotional pressure within the home, which has that, ha- that has a true cost. 
to households in the United States and throughout the globe, that there are, there are more things to the picture than just the interest rate or whatever it may be. There are, there are emotional tolls taken by uh, extending yourself in situations that you know you shouldn't be entering into. And so I think there's wisdom in alleviated debt and alleviating the pressure that's related to it before going big on investing. And so that would be my quick take on the debt side. And then caveat, you know, there's always a, a rule or an exception to every rule. In scenarios like we're in right now with weird inflation rates and weird interest rates and stuff like that, like I would totally be on board with or even encourage someone who has a corporate job to invest in a 401k matching plan, you know, that's getting an 8% match from an employer as, and and forget about the 3% interest rate on a car and say, hey, leave leave your car alone. Don't pay that off early. Put that incremental dollar into the 8% matching, you know, and then you're getting your money doubled over there. So I think there are some exceptions to the rule. Uh, but in general, I think that, you know, staying away from debt is wise, both financially and emotionally. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of my two cents. One one thing though, sorry to, I, I was just interrupted you, uh, but Dave fires me up on some of this stuff. Uh, his his seven steps, like you mentioned, one thing I disagree on is is the giving. Like he has giving saved for the bottom. And my personal preference would be to give along the way. You know, so he's essentially saying steps one through six are get out of debt and then and save is one through six and then build wealth and give is step seven. I think it's actually good for your soul to give along the way and learn and build in generosity um, along the way. That's my, my quick caveat on the, the seven baby steps. That's a great thought. And yeah, that is, I mean, it's such a foundational principle that, that I mean, has, has really been present in all of Dave Ramsey's teaching is, is the proverb you mentioned. The borrower is slave to the lender. And uh, here's the thing, though, you know, if King Solomon wrote that proverb, did King Solomon have access to levered ETFs? <laughs> and if he if he would have, maybe he would have changed his tune. That is a joke. That is a joke. I am in no way, no way endorsing or telling this is not investment advice. We're going to do a mid podcast disclosure. I am not endorsing leveraged ETFs. Uh, so I love those thoughts, Blaine. Uh, and, you know. I think it's I think it's tough, and I'm not going to say anything more on this point because it really leads in perfectly to our last topic and our very last point we're going to debate. So I'll, I'll hold off on any commentary here. So point number five, Dave Ramsey says, only buy a house with 20% down. Um, if you're going to buy a house, wait until you have 20% down. If you don't have 20% down, Dave Ramsey says, you can't afford that house. Financial planner on Twitter, you do not need to put down 20% to buy a house. Blaine, what do you think? Yeah, again, uh, nuanced response here. Um, so I think it's case by case. Justin, you like I know that you bought maybe your first home in Fayetteville was with 5% down. You know, and then that less became, than that. Okay, so three, three and a half, whatever, whatever it is. Um, so you know, and then like overnight, it becomes a cash flowing asset, right? Like, what other asset class can you buy with ninety five, ninety seven and a half, whatever the math is, ninety five percent debt, and then it cash flows the next month? Like that's crazy. Um, and everyone should totally do that if they can do that. But 
most people are not living in college towns where they can rent out the other rooms in their homes to roommates. And so I think that his advice is, you know, kind of geared toward single family homes, families, you know, avoiding debt. And so they're buying to provide their, the, you know, to his audience, they're, they're buying homes to provide a roof for their families and hopefully a nice and safe neighborhood. And so in a normal scenario, a more normal scenario than, than yours, Justin, is, you know, Houston, for example, you super familiar with the housing market. And um, if you want to purchase a house near where I am right now in the energy corridor near the memorial area, you're going to need $150,000, $250,000 down to reach your 20% mark. And if you don't, there's a penalty for not putting 20% down. It's called PMI and the bank will slap you with PMI. And, you know, at 1% that uh, 1% per annum, you know, a bank is going to levy a $10,000 tax on you for not throwing on a million dollar home for not throwing 20% down. Just because you decided to reach on a house, $10,000 to the bank for no reason. To me, I think that that's a heavy tax and a heavy burden to lift. Uh, so in that scenario, for his audience, I think that I'm with Dave, be diligent with your money. Save on the $10,000 PMI uh, and wait until you can put 20% down. I love it. So we were talking before the podcast. Uh, this is kind of the only piece of, of Dave Ramsey advice, in my opinion, that uh, in the last two years or so could have really ended up not being great if a family took this advice. And uh, I don't think that's I don't think that's Dave Ramsey's fault by any means, but uh, like if you were a family in 2019 and you did not buy a house because you wanted to wait until you had 20% down, well, obviously the pandemic happened and now every home where people want to live is now 80% more expensive. And so that's, that's a really tough deal. Um, and so that's kind of the, and that's what I was going to say about the previous point. Um, should you pay off every debt you have before starting to invest? Well, I mean, by and large, over the past 25, 30 years, if a person follows Dave Ramsey's advice, they're going to become pretty wealthy. Um, if you save 15% of your income, you know, there are some really neat things in financial planning that, that you know, sound really sophisticated and complex. But there's also an element to financial planning where it's really simple and it's not rocket science. And if you have a high savings rate and you avoid debt or keep debt really low, yeah, you're going to become wealthy. And so, you know, Blaine, we talked about this, but America has essentially rewarded you for taking as much leverage on good assets as early as possible. And I mean, America's kind of been structured that way for a long time now. So even though lots of people may have missed out by waiting until 2016 to buy their house instead of 2013, if you follow these principles, you're going you're gonna to wake up decades later and you're probably going to be very pleased with your financial situation. Only in this last weird two-year stretch where real estate almost doubled has it been pretty, pretty punitive. Um, any other thoughts on those Dave Ramsey topics? Yeah, I, I stand strong in my pro Dave stance. Uh, thanks for letting me voice my opinion and we'll get, we'll get them on in the next one. We'll, we'll wire them in. I love that. Yeah, we should get Dave here to give his thoughts. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, if, if we have a couple minutes, I want to ask you one more question. I do think uh, our listeners are going to be interested in this. 
So Blaine, you mentioned that you work uh, at an oil and gas company in the Houston area. So you obviously have your workplace benefits and stuff like that. Um, so kind of traditional investments are, are, are happening um, in your household. But you do have something else that a lot of people don't have, but they're kind of interested in. You invest in single family homes as rental properties. Um, so if it's okay with you, I'd love to just give give us a quick summary of that. Um, what is it like doing that? How much work is it outside of your regular job? How much of a headache is it? Um, talk a little bit about the pros and cons. I'm threading the needle very oddly. Like I don't own a personal home for my family and my boys. Sorry, Sammy, Lucas, Nico. Uh, but yet we own homes in the Tulsa area um, and have a couple other real estate investments um, through this LLC. Um, and so... Yeah, I think for us, it's been really fun. It started in 2014 with just a close high school friend and myself deciding to dive in and we didn't know what our careers were going to look like. And we were like, hey, well, what if we want to go be basketball coaches or football coaches or whatever? And we happen to have this one home that's cash flowing, you know, $20,000 a year or whatever. That would be nice in case we ever get on a teacher's salary. And so that was kind of the initial thought. And then we've we scaled a little bit, very slowly, very conservatively. We own five homes uh, in the Tulsa area and uh, tiny portions of a couple other commercial projects. And so it's like very benign. Um, but for us, it's been a lot of fun. And I think for me, thinking about my children and as a legacy to be able to kind of hand the keys of homes to my boys and say, hey, this is a paid off you know, cash flowing asset and don't, don't screw it up. Here you go. Um, is a cool legacy, uh, to leave behind in terms of headaches and works and all that stuff. We have a property manager, uh, in Owasso, obviously I'm in Houston, um, and they're in the Tulsa area. And so that doesn't, uh, provide, you know, much efficiency. And so we have a, a friend do that, that takes a small fee, um, up front and then, you know, some labor and parts and all that stuff for all the hands-on stuff. And so, Honestly, my my business partners will will hate me saying this because I definitely have the good side of the coin. I don't think about it much. Uh, I think about it during tax season, and that is it. And that's not reality for a lot of people. I have other friends doing it in Texas and Oklahoma and Arkansas and throughout uh, the country. And a lot of them are a lot more aggressive than me and have had a lot more success than me. And I'm super pumped for them. For me, just being who I am, conservative, boring, no risk, father of two young kids. I want like hands off and, and it's kind of fit for us. So that's kind of my quick spiel and happy to dive in on any other follow-up. That's awesome. Yeah. I think our listeners are going to be interested. Uh, it's, it's something that everyone kind of thinks about doing and few people actually take the steps to uh, get an LLC, purchase homes, and manage them and in uh, all of the different tax and, and maintenance considerations that, that come and arise from that. So I appreciate you sharing. I think it's an interesting topic, fun to discuss. And I think that wraps it up. So for now, this podcast is by and large, we, we really like Dave Ramsey. We think he's done an enormous amount of good uh, for, the, for the average financial household. Um, but it, it's fun to debate these topics. If you have thoughts, uh, send us a message. And as always, send us any ideas for future podcasts. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can subscribe or connect with us at brownleewealthmanagement.com. 
or send ideas for future episodes to podcast at brownleewealthmanagement.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed during this show or episode should be viewed as investment, legal, and tax advice. If you have questions pertaining to your specific situation, please consult the appropriate qualified professional.